But the truth is that leading is, is not following others. It's leading yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not saying I'm trying to be someone else. It's learning what your true unique value in this world is and then teaching other people how to lead themselves. This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast and I'm your host, George Khalifa. On this podcast, I interview Michael Brody Waite, who's an acclaimed speaker, entrepreneur, award-winning three-time CEO, leadership coach, and author. Michael was the co-founder and CEO of an Inc. 500 startup that he sold to a publicly traded company. He then sparked the hashtag mask-free movement, which brought awareness to his mask-free program. He also did a TEDx talk in Nashville, which was called Great Leaders Do What Drug Addicts Do, and that became the number one talk in the history of TEDx Nashville. It has been seen by over 1 million people in over 25 countries and provides insight into his 17-year journey from addiction and near homelessness to CEO and where he's at now helping individuals, organizations, and communities on how to lead themselves by living mask-free. First of all, how have you been uh, during this whole transition? Quarantining, working from home, what's that been like for you? I'm always asking guests that first. Oh, dude, I'm a recovering addict. So like our deal is isolation due to a disease. So like this is natural <laughs> to me. This is very, very comfortable. I, I, I have a lot of friends in recovery that are, uh, are like, this is exactly what I'd always hope for, the ability to stay clean and isolate. So it's actually been pretty cool. Yeah, well, you know, a veteran there, dude. But uh, it's, it's an interesting take. And what I love about your story too, and kind of the message is, is really removing that mask. And when I was first, you know, listening to the TEDx, uh, talk and, and learning more about your story. That's what intrigued me the most is, you know, when you were battling with drug addiction, you always had a mask, right? And a lot of that was yep. in lying to a lot of people. And why, what, I mean, why did you sort of resort uh, to drugs early in life? What was that kind of path for you? You know, I, I don't, I don't 100% know. Uh, I think a lot of us that are in recovery, sometimes we have really traumatic experiences. Um, I definitely think there's a genetic piece to it. But At the end of the day, I didn't feel like I knew how to deal with life on life's terms. And I always felt like I wasn't enough. And I didn't like the way that I felt, uh, especially in front of other people. And I found that if I put alcohol or drugs in my system, I could feel better about myself. Yeah, it's a a weird thing with alcohol, too, especially different types. Like I know whiskey, for example, you know, as soon as you down that, like all of a sudden you're you know, I, I feel like for a lot of people, their personalities are a bit more energetic, you know, they're, they're more social, but that becomes almost an addiction in itself, because you can't be that type of person without that substance. You know, like, if you oh, go to yeah. a party, and you're sober, it's so weird for, for, for a lot of people to stomach that, you know, like, why aren't you drinking with us? You know, dude, in my first six months in uh, clean, I thought that I'd lost all of my social skills. Like I literally could not talk to anybody. I was so horribly awkward. And it just turned out that I was used to mm. Um, the lubricant of of the substances. And my personal theory is that addicts um, have, and this is just my theory, have an obsessive compulsive trait where they're obsessed with managing how they're going to feel, regardless of whether it's good or bad, they want it to be predictable. And so when you put substances in your body, it can become a predictable feeling. Right, right. And and I, I think that's maybe part of the addiction. And for you, when, when, when was that maybe tipping point that you went from basically letting go of your mask and starting to tell people seeking help. What was that transition like for you? Uh, It's when I went to rehab. So I woke up September 1st, 2002 at the Betty Ford center out in Rancho Mirage, California. 
mm-hmm. and I had been kicked out of school, fired from my job, kicked out of my house, car had been repossessed. I was throwing up blood and I was 23 years old and I didn't think I'd make it to my 30th birthday. And one of the things that they told me was that the masks had to go. They said like, you cannot hide anymore. And you know, a lot of people out there may not be an addict, but everybody has the worst thing about them. The thing that they're Mm -hmm. scared of showing the world. And in rehab, I had to really, I had to be equipped with a set of tools that allowed me to not put the mask on to protect myself so that I could be known and so that I could develop who I was. Yeah, that, that's a tough one to do, it's especially talking about being vulnerable, right? I mean, I think that's a big one, especially when, when you have this facade and you don't want to show that weakness. Uh, it, it could be very difficult, you know, to, to, to go through that process. Is that what it, you found? Yeah, I mean, it's hard in the real world. It's not that hard in rehab. When you are in rehab, you are humbled. Like, you're with a bunch of other people that have reached <laughs> the end of the road. Like, there's... it's actually easy because you take the people that everybody says are like some of the worst aspects of society at our absolute lowest and put us all in the same room and suddenly I'm doing pretty well, actually. (laughs) Uh, It's when you put us out in the real world that we go through what everybody else goes through. We just have a really bad response to it. And that is um, a lot of people feel like who they are is not enough and they want to be successful personally or professionally and they strive and they do all this kind of stuff and they hide their true selves in order to get the promotion the title the company the whatever and then even when they get it they don't feel successful enough and everybody suffers from imposter syndrome because everybody's acting like a freaking imposter they're not acting like themselves when they're doing this stuff and so for me it was you know i didn't have the luxury like other people in the real world whether they be you know a personal level or professional level most people wear a mask to hide themselves in order to be successful, but I couldn't do that anymore because my life was on the line. And so it got really uncomfortable really quickly once I got out of rehab and I had to go back into the real world. What was the first thing you did? Like in terms of like, like major thing, obviously not the micro, but what was, what was that shift? As soon as you delved into the real world, what was that first thing that you kind of started tackling? So uh, this is going to, this is going to sound really micro, but um, I checked into the halfway house I set down my bags and the house manager said, you know, you have five business days to get a job or I'm going to kick you out. Mm. And so the very first thing that I had to focus on more than anything else was like just getting a job. Because if I didn't get in five business days, I'd be out in the street. And if I was out on the street, I would, I was fairly certain I would relapse and die. So that was my number one priority getting a job once I got there. Did you find that difficult in terms of and I'm like, what, maybe what was the, what was the kind of job first? Was it kind of corporate or, cause I know you're, you're, you delve into entrepreneurship later on, but. Yeah, it was, so for, it was any job. And so I went and I applied everywhere and I had to lo- leave like a three or four gap, a three or four year gap on my resume because I've been using. And, um, I, how did you everywhere. explain that? Like, did that <laughs> ever come up in a, in a conversation or were you? Well, funny thing, when you put a three or four year gap on your resume, you don't get a lot of calls. So you don't get to explain it. <laughs> because people don't want to hire sense. you, but, yeah. but I, I got, a, I got a call from a, a CD store back when we used to buy music in person, you know, back, you know, a brick and mortar Spotify essentially. Yeah. And it was a place called Sam Goody and they called me for a job interview. And my sponsor told me when I asked him, what do I say? How do I explain that gap? He told me that I had to practice the three principles that um, I talk and up talk about today. So I had to practice rigorous authenticity. I had to tell them who I was and why I was there and why I had a gap. I had to surrender the outcome. I had to let go of what the hiring manager would think. 
and whether or not I was going to get the job or stay in the halfway house. And I had to do the uncomfortable work, which meant for the first time in my life, really out in the real world, telling the truth in the hardest of circumstances, because a job interview is the number one place people do not want to share their greatest weakness, especially if your home is on the line, especially if you're, if you feel like your life is on the line, that's the last thing you want to do. But I had to practice those three principles because I wanted to live and I didn't want to use drugs. And so I went in that job interview and I did. But I guess part of, you know, finding your, I guess, authenticity takes a lot of, you know, self-awareness and, and you learning about yourself. Is that, did that process happen when you were in rehab or did it happen afterwards? Man, it's still happening. Uh, I, mm. I think it's a lot easier for me, at least, to spot when I'm trying to put on a mask than to tell you who I truly am. It's easier for me to tell when I'm trying to cover my real, my true self up than it is for me to tell you who I truly am. I did a lot of reflection rehab. I'm a pretty self-aware guy being in recovery. I've done, read a lot of books, gone through a lot of trainings and all that kind of stuff. But human beings are so beautifully dynamic that who we are truly in word and action changes as our circumstances change. And so I don't think any of us can fully say this is who I am. Right. But in a moment, in any moment, we usually know what is true to ourselves and what we're tempted to hide. Right. And so you just do that long enough, you start to really discover yourself. So for me, when I was in that interview, I didn't necessarily know who I truly, I knew I was a drug addict. I knew I needed to tell him the truth about why I had a gap in my resume. And I knew I wanted to lie about it. And that was about it. Yeah, th th there's something interesting. I was talking to an actor actually last week on the podcast and he said something pretty interesting. He's like, listen, a lot of people think when you're an actor, you're, you're trying to be a different person. He's like, I'm always myself. And, and truthfully, the most successful actors are really portraying their, their, their personalities at the core, but it's just different dials. You know, so if it's like an action movie, they're, they're just fine tuning different dials, but it's at the core, it's, it's actually who they are. Otherwise, that BS will, will come out on the screen. Yeah. yeah. So I found that really interesting in relation to this. That explains why Tom Cruise is the same person in every movie. Basically. basically. <laughs> and funny enough, that's actually who his like idol was on when, we were, when I was talking to him. Um, so so that, that's pretty cool. And then, so obviously you're still on that, that journey of self-discovery. And, and what does that process look like? Like when you do that today, you're talking to a lot of companies, you know, you had the TEDx talk. You, you recently wrote a book, which is coming out in May. So yep. I'd love for you to kind of talk about what, what, what were some of those learnings that you took and wanted to highlight in that book that, uh, that's coming out, which people can actually pre-order. And it's called Great Leaders Live Like Drug Addicts. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I think, so this is how I structured the book because this is how I've learned this stuff. Chapter one is I'm Mike, I'm an addict. I'm a drug addict. Chapter mm -hmm. two is you're blank and you're a mask addict. And so one of the biggest things that I've learned is people are addicted to hiding their true selves. And the reason that, you know, we have a lot of inspira inspiration around authenticity and authentic leadership, but we don't actually get it is because people don't know how to do it. And so it's recognizing we have an addiction to the mask. And so then chapter three is um, the addict's advantage. And so to answer your question, what I've learned is that there are four masks that everybody wears that holds mm -hmm. back every individual team and organization and their greatest potential. It's saying yes when you could say no, it's hiding a weakness, it's avoiding a difficult conversation and holding back your unique perspective. And that right there is prevalent in every individual team and organization across the world. And I experienced those as a drug addict. I said yes to the drugs when I should have said no. I hid my addiction. I didn't want to talk about it. And whatever I had to offer the world was covered up by what I was hiding. And what I found is there isn't a lot that's different. 
the difference between a drug addict and a leader is we both wear masks, just leaders get paid better. <laughs> that's, that's the difference. It's and so on land. Yes. The other difference is, is that recovering addicts actually get equipped with a tool set to live without a mask and live mask free. And so what I've learned is, um, you know, I spent eight years in corporate America. I left there and I founded my own company and then I ran a nonprofit. And now I wrote this book and I'm carrying this message everywhere. I think that, and I know that 90% of leaders, after I've assessed them, 90% of leaders are wearing a mask and it's holding back their greatest potential and their team's greatest potential. And I believe that the principles that addicts use to recover are the key to them unlocking that potential. Yeah, man, that, that's so true. And, and don't you feel like it's kind of a, a, a weird, vicious circle in a sense? Because I remember even when I graduated, I went into the sales, uh, sales side within kind of the finance world. And, you know, to be honest with you, my fear was, that if I'm going to be successful in this, uh, you know, maybe the environment, and these were just uh, um, sort of misconceptions I had, but at the time, that's what you think of, you know, I'm going into this field and, you know, maybe I'm going to have to be peer pressured into drinking and always doing this kind of socializing. Uh, but, but I, you know, on the side, I'm also trying to live a, a healthy life. You know, I'm trying to go to the gym. I don't want to have to go to, to bars every single night just to do, you know, business development or build relationships. And I felt like if I'm, if I'm feeling this, how many other people are feeling the same pressure, but aren't doing anything about it. And, and you have this uh, notion because that's what you think you need to do to succeed in a weird way. You know, like if I'm, if I'm really going to, to succeed, I have to get into this club, let's, let's call it, and, and build those personal relationships. So how, how do you overcome that when you think that you have a lot to lose, essentially? The first thing is to actually challenge the notion that you have a lot to lose. My experience is that 99% of the worst things that ever happened to me happened in my head. Mm-hmm. And I think that we give up quite a bit out of that fear. And you have to recognize that Command and control leadership is the model for leadership that we've learned. And that is never doubt the leader. The leader needs to be strong and all that kind of stuff. And that made sense when you're on a battlefield or in a manufacturing economy. In a services economy where human connection is what determines whether people are successful or not, taking off the mask makes you more successful. But we have centuries of a model for leadership that is, that is the antithesis of that. So when we enter the workforce, whether it's as an entrepreneur, freelancer, like whatever, we see the leaders and what they're doing and we think we have to do what they're doing. But the truth is that leading is, is not following others. It's leading yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not saying I'm trying to be someone else. It's learning what your true unique value in this world is and then teaching other people how to lead themselves. Right. And so I think that we have this notion that leadership is actually following and we've forgotten what true leadership really is. And it starts within yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, what, are, are you a leader if you hide who you truly are? Like true leaders take unpopular stances. They stand for what's right. They do it over and over again, no matter what the cost is. And so if that means like, dude, it can be as silly as me not wanting to talk to my boss about a raise or not wanting to talk to a customer about terms or performance managing an employee, or I live in the South and I'm from California and, and, and saying, I don't care about the SEC. I care about the San Francisco 49ers <laughs> in a room full of people that love college football. Like whatever it is, when we submit to the pressure to conform to what other people think professionally, we think we're doing what it takes to get ahead. But if you want to be a real, like a true leader in a modern economy where connection with humans is what wins, you're going to be able to connect with yourself first and then lead yourself 
Because if you give other people permission to take their mask off and you have a connection with them that is genuinely human, that transcends business. Right. And that usually helps you attract, develop, and retain talent, helps you get customers. But most people are scared to death to do it. They are, they are as scared as I was going to rehab. But it changed my life and it gave me a better life. And I think the same thing can happen for them. You know, what's kind of weird, though, is, is, is drugs in a weird way freed you. You know what I mean? They, they got you yeah. to the bottom at, at, at such a low point where you were forced to look at yourself in the most you know, naked sense where a lot of people can do that every day, but really, really choose very, very hard not to. Isn't that a weird <laughs> conundrum? It's so I actually talk about this. So um, recovering addicts are positioned to be better leaders than normal people that don't have addictions because we have two things that most normal we call you guys normies those of you who don't have an nice, issue nice. so normies <laughs> so the what most leaders they don't have the two things that we have right number one if i take off the mask as a leader and i'm a normie i'm gonna i'm gonna win i've done the research i'm gonna win 500 hours a year i'm gonna grow my talent faster i'm going to be able to spot innovation and unlock blind spots. That's all great. Those are all benefits. People drive their behavior based off of an aversion to a negative drug addicts. I have to take the mask off or I effing die. It's that desperate. So I walk around, whether I'm in the boardroom or in my house, I walk around with a loaded gun pointed at my head that says you cannot put the mask on. Cause once you do the disease will of addiction will live. And then, it's off to the races. So number one, I have a, I have a motivation that most other leaders don't have and recovering addicts exactly. have that. Number two, there's a lot of people that talk about authenticity. They talk about the what and the why. They don't talk about the how. There's no how. Nobody's actually saying, here's a step-by-step -step thing. Let me tell you what a how is. A 12-step program. Up until 80 years ago, every addict had no way how to get to recovery. But there is a step-by-step -step program that was created that allows anyone from any background, any intellectual capacity, any education level, any language, any country, take this step-by-step -step process and do a full 180 in who they are to save their life. And I have the fortune as a recovering addict to go to 2,000 12-step meetings where I get to practice with these wonderful men and women how to live and lead mask-free. And it's free. It just costs me an hour like a night and it cost me a bad cup of coffee, but it's something that they don't teach you when you do an MBA or a corporate training. And so because I have the incentive and the place to practice, I actually know how to live mask free in a way and recovering addicts know how to live mask free in a way that most people don't because like, I'm a big fan of like authors like Brene Brown and all these other people that believe in authenticity. Perfect. Idol of mine, love her, but she, when, when I read her books, I was like, this sounds great. And then I tried to go do it and everything broke. And then I tried to show my team how to do it and everything broke. And I'm like, I need a step-by-step -step system that is as simple and foolproof as the 12 steps for drug addicts. And so like, that's what I've tried to create with my book. I see. I see. So, and, and if, if I gather what you're saying, cause funny when you bring uh, Brittany Brown up, uh, we, you know, my girlfriend and I were wa actually watching it think like a week ago almost uh her, her netflix uh, series or special but you know the, the, and I, I actually i don't think i i watched her tedx talk until more recently so i always knew yeah. about her I, I knew of her book i knew about the concept but wasn't like really uh into that whole message until more recently and, and so what you're saying is like let's say i'm open to the message right i i take that core core message and really try to apply it in maybe my team at work that might not go well because i didn't necessarily take the right procedures or that 12 steps 12 step process to get to the point where i can do it in a very genuine authentic way 
Is, is yeah. that is that is that the right way? Well, so so here's the thing. Here's the crazy thing. So all leaders, every leader of every organization understands one word that's really important, and that word is scale. Mm. You need to be able to scale something, right? And right. so as an organization grows, they create the processes, the tools, and the procedures that are necessary to reproduce the impact that they were able to achieve when it was a founder-led venture or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm talking about is we need to take that same rigor to counteracting centuries of training on how to lead. And we need to take that same rigor to living and leading mass free. I'm not knocking Brene Brown. She opened the door. She's my idol. I love her. If I ever get to meet her, I'm going to hug her and cry. Like that is how much I love her. But she, she was coming at it from an academic angle and it was the inspiration that I needed, but we need like the actual procedures, the what are the actual steps? Because you can tell a drug addict to stop using drugs all that you want. You can tell them to happen. stop until you're blue in the face. Until you tell them what to start instead, they won't stop. And they need that specific action plan or whatever. And I think that we have been lacking that. And that's the gap that I'm trying to fill. But I think I don't want to knock anyone that's had the inspiration. It's mm. just if a leader, so if a leader hears this conversation and they go, yeah, man, I'm going to say no, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, have the difficult conversations. The problem is that they're reentering a world that is a hundred percent reinforcing the other exactly. way to live. Exactly. And the war of attrition is too great. If you don't have an actual step-by-step -step framework in which you're going to do this. And you also yeah. need to equip your team with those tools as well, because you can't be doing it alone. Yeah, it's so true, man. I, and I find it like, so here, here's another funny analogy. Um, I have a lot of friends in psych, okay, who are studying like psychology and you just, you see the difference between psychology and business when they do their, you know, uh, meetings or stuff. Sometimes I hear it uh, when, when they're online, especially now, because it's virtual, yeah. they'll be so open with each other, you know? And, and it's like, uh, when I first started listening to it, I'm like, this is like a sob fest, man. Everybody's just like opening up their hearts and their feelings. And, you know, me being in business um, and, and yeah. not, and, and this is at a time where I wasn't exposed to the whole vulnerability message before. I was like, that's so weird because when we have our team meetings and our calls, it's always like, yeah, everything's great here, you know, doing well. I mean, despite, you know, the circumstances still fighting through, it was always yeah. like, you know, I, despite what's going on, I'm still fighting through. I'm keeping positive. Everyone, everything's good, you know? And, and so to your point, sometimes it's, it's, it's okay looking in, you know, at the camera to your team and saying, listen, it's, it's been a tough week. You know, things yeah. haven't gone my way. Like it's, it's been well, quite, quite terrible. Like whatever the, the, the message is. But that's so important. So Google, I work, I work a lot with Google and Google did a study to identify what were the characteristics of their highest performing teams. And they mapped 180 different characteristics, if I recall correctly. And they boiled it down to 15 characteristics. And the number one characteristic was psychological safety. How safe do you feel if, if the person that's leading you, you know, is hiding their fear or their insecurity or their pain or their weaknesses. How strong do you feel to develop your weaknesses if your leader's hiding theirs? I mean, it's, it's like basic human stuff, but I also, by the way, noticed on your bookshelf that you do have Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown right there. So like you and I are brothers, uh, right next to Gary Vee, which I think is really- <laughs> Virtual <interesting>. hug, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I think that the world, it wasn't always this way, man. If, if a general's making an order on a battlefield, you don't have time to talk about your fears and your pains. You, people need to execute the orders. 
but most entrepreneurs and leaders are trying to decentralize decision-making. They're trying to equip people on the front lines in a services economy that are solving problems with what they need to do that. And they need to be able to acknowledge their humanity to actually have access to all of their potential gifts and strengths and to have all the information. And then they need to flow all the real information back up to the top because the organizations have decentralized decision-making. They, they're relying on front lines to give them data. So when you do that seal of like, I'm all good, dude, I'm totally fine. Everything's fine over here. And meanwhile, every single like piece of your product has failed. And then headquarters three months later finds out that there's a faulty part in the product and you could have told them like that's the worst case scenario. And that's not about metrics and and strategic plans. That's about good old fashioned masks, man. That's holding back that organization in that example. Exactly, exactly. And, and especially being an optimi optimist myself and always trying to, to look at the positives in the world. You know, I, I think that was just kind of uh, how I grew up. You know, I grew up in the Middle East. I, I was born in Lebanon. So, so we have a very different view of what reality looks like especially yeah. for a lot of my cousins and, and, and having that, that difference, like me being in North America and a lot of them being back home where electricity isn't always readily available. Water is scared. Like all these pain points that for us are like, what the hell? We're in 2020, you know? Right. So that's why it was always difficult for me to balance that. But also my question to you is like, how do you, how do you ca counteract being, um, being maybe vulnerable, open without being too negative? Cause that might be the trap as well, or maybe seen as negative if it's not your intention. No, that's, that's a great question. So um, I think that there's this pressure to be positive um, that is so great that I think that the people that do the kind of work that I'm doing, sometimes we can sound negative because we're always focusing on the stuff that people aren't, you know, making safe. Yeah. Um, I think that I, to me, it's really important. So I've, I've got a bunch of people that I coach and it's really important to, to honor what we call the mask free wins. Um, and so like, you have to, they have to become, uh, fables that you aspire to. So like I have somebody, um, who's a consultant named Emily and she was in this meeting with like 10 people and she felt there were superiors there and all this stuff. And she felt the pressure to not say what she was thinking, but she thought that she saw something no one else did. And she wanted to hold back her unique perspective. But then she thought about the three principles. She practiced them. She did the uncomfortable work and five minutes of uncomfortable work saved them 20 hours of time and uncovered a $5 million benefit for their customer. And so I think that we, we need to talk about the, the wins and we need to talk about the full story. Leaders have a tendency to want to like overcome in private. And, and then as a result, none of us get to enjoy the win. And to me, real leadership is like, I'm in the middle of the crap right now. I have no idea how the story ends, but walk with me and see what I do. And then if you walk with me and we figure out whatever the problem was or whatever my weakness was I need to work on, that victory is sincere and sweet. It's it that is much real sweeter. and genuine and it's motivating. And so you get the full spectrum of the human experience. Yeah. Oh, you that's, that's a very good point. Go under the winds. One of the things I said in my TED talk that I still struggle with is um, being able to enjoy success. Um, I mean, nobody really wants to hear someone complain about that, but like it's, it creates real problems for the people around me. Like I, I have a tendency to focus on how can we improve? How can we improve? How can we improve? Mm -hmm. And so I think that you have to be really intentional when you do this work. If you lean into the mass free stuff, you got to lean into mask free wins, not the fake wins. Like, Hey, we're, we're killing it. And you're not. But like, if you actually have a win, like, so it can be the smallest thing. It could be, um, I was with a bunch of friends and I wanted to say something different about the pandemic. And, and I wanted to actually say that, that I'm, I'm succeeding in all of this. And I was scared mm -hmm. to do that. 
And yeah. if someone does yeah. that, you got to honor that, man. Whether whether be, yeah. taking off your mask saves you 10 minutes or $10 million, it's a step on a journey to the biggest war and the biggest leadership opportunity sitting in front of everybody here. And so every step needs to be honored and celebrated. Yeah, that's the other thing too that's kind of weird, right? Sometimes you have a pressure of kind of concealing the wins because you don't want to look like an asshole. You know, it's, it's isn't so that weird? up. Yes, we want to, we want to say that we have victories when we have losses. And then when we have victories, we want to pretend that we have losses. It's the most jacked up stuff in the history of the world, man. It doesn't make any sense anymore. Yeah, it reminds yeah. me when I used to, like, I used to be a very chubby kid when I was, uh, I was very chubby when I was a kid, sorry. I had a mushroom cut, you know, and, and I was very insecure about myself. And what's funny is that left a lot of, uh, a lot of scarring. And I didn't actually even know that at the time. But now, and I realized more when I was an adult, every time I'd get a compliment, I'd, I'd like shut it down right away. Yep. And not in a disrespectful way, but like, you'd be like, Oh, George, you're looking good, man. I'd be like, Oh, thanks. Anyways, what's, what's going on, dude? What's going on with you? You know, I kind of flip it back at you and I wouldn't yeah. genuinely receive that compliment. Cause I, I don't know. I just, I never felt it would be sincere given what, you know, what I kind of had to go through when I was, when I was younger. So it's, that, it's kind see, of similar. Like, that makes you one of the good ones though. Right? Like, um, in, my experience is it's the arrogant a-holes that can't stop bragging about themselves. And it's the people that are really awesome that feel bad honoring their strengths and their wins. And I think that for a lot of us, we say it's that, oh, I don't want to make it about me. I don't want to make it about me. For me, it's that I don't think I'm worthy. Mm. Like I'm scared that if I believe your compliment, I'm going to buy you. You don't mean it. You're not sincere. And I, now I'm going to start believing that I'm better than I am. And actually what I'm, what I'm thinking is you actually think I suck and you're just saying this, right? Like I don't want right. to have a false sense of security that who I am is okay. So the way I defend myself is I honor all my weaknesses in, in, in some way. And then when I have strengths, I don't talk about them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just a great, it's a defense mechanism against um, not wanting to get the rug pulled out from underneath us. Basically. That's my experience at all. Yeah. Dude, one thing too, I just wanted to mention for, for those who haven't seen the TEDx yet, although it's been watched by more than a million people. So kudos, love it. Uh, you, it's the first time I ever see someone walk on stage with sandals and just look like a fucking boss. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to, I have to give you, you that, saying, Dude, that was a big, that was a big dramatic decision. Uh, it was my, so amazing, all, dude. Dude, of all people, my wife, she hates that I share this, but she was like, you cannot wear flip-flops on that stage. And, and I was like, and then a bunch of other people were like, you cannot wear flip-flops on that stage. And then a, and a buddy of mine in recovery was like, isn't your whole talk about authenticity? And don't <laughs> you, you wear flip-flops all the time? And I was like, oh yeah, this is actually a really simple decision. And then if you look at the comments for the TED Talk, I always like to say this. I'm What I intended to say at the very beginning, I messed up. Not horribly, but I messed up. Nobody knows. Like in the intro, you Nobody mean? Has yeah, yeah. Okay. Nobody knows. And nobody's commented on it, but there is this huge like commentary running thread of why is it why the f <laughs> is this guy wearing flip flops or this guy's awesome because he's wearing flip flops? No one knows that like I the actual mistake that I made. No one knows that, but like they want to discuss me honoring my unique perspective about my footwear. Like some people are like, I can't trust this guy because he's wearing <laughs> flip flops. Other people are like, I can trust this guy because he's wearing flip flops. I'm like, it's not about the feet. My feet are ugly, dude. I don't even know why I wear flip flops. Focus they on the ugly. message, man. Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm know, here for. I mean, that's, that's how we do, but uh, I appreciate that. It's- um, I love it, man. Dude, you know what's what, weird? What's that? Is uh, being known as a flip flop guy and then going and doing a speaking engagement and people getting pissed off that you're wearing shoes. 
Yeah, like, come on, dude. I, I thought you said you're authentic. Where the fuck are the football? Seriously. <laughs> Someone's like, you're wearing shoes, Mike. You're not being authentic. I was like, no, I wanted the back support right now. Like, I'm actually <laughs> being true to myself. I'm not going to be locked in this version of who you think I am. That's true. Footwear is an interesting topic. Dude, what got you into uh, entrepreneurship? Because one of the one of the things that people should know is you eventually, uh, you know, founded a startup, which which I want you to talk about, and then ended up selling it to a Fortune 500 company, which is insane. And that was after I think you went through rehab, got your life yep. back together. So what was that? What was that story like? Yeah, man. So uh, for me, I, my dream when I was a kid was to be an entrepreneur. And yeah. uh, when I got clean. And I got a job in corporate America and I spent eight years there. I was like, okay, that's, I'm good. I'm not using drugs. I haven't died. I have a roof over my head. I should have reached for the stars. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I, I had an experience. Like I think I'll, I always think there's two different types of entrepreneurs. There's the academic um, MBA type entrepreneur and then there's the street entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And there's an entrepreneur that's like, I want to change the world this way for me. And I had an experience at the doctor's office where um, I had an appointment at one and he didn't see me till three. And I was already pissed off because I couldn't schedule the appointment online. So I had to take time off during my work day to like call. And then he wasted two of my hours and then he did it again. And I'm like, if a Boeing 737 can send me a text message letting me know it's running late, why the heck can't my doctor? And so at the height of the recession, um, I had built out this plan for the ability for patients in healthcare to make appointments online and to get reminders if they're running late. And I found uh, this guy that had built a piece of software for the emergency room that was similar to what I had dreamt up. And so I started stalking him and, and I knew one of two things was going to happen. He was going to be my partner. I was going to get a restraining order. And, um, and luckily I didn't get the restraining order. And so we teamed up and in 2010, we launched, um, in quicker, uh, the second version of in quicker where you could wait in line virtually for the emergency room without having to wait in the emergency room. And you could be seen within 15 minutes, as long as you didn't have a life threatening condition. And my vision, I wish I knew about this. What I know. Well, I'll I'll tell you about uh, the story afterwards. It's all over Chicago. This was in Um, Canada, but I'll tell you the story afterwards. Anyways, continue. Okay. I want to hear it afterwards. So so we um we teamed up and i maxed out my credit card drained my bank account um you know withdrew from my 401k we didn't have any investors we'd never done this before but we went out and i just started trying to sell hospitals on the software that would allow people to schedule appointments online and um six months in we were maxed out and i was getting kicked out of hospitals but every once in a while someone be like oh my god you're going to change healthcare." And we finally landed a couple deals and we were able to build a company despite we, we built an Inc 500 company, despite not having investors, never having done it, no experience in healthcare, no Ivy league degrees. No one had ever built a startup to a million dollars in revenue, let alone 10. Um, but what we had was a mat. I mean, seriously, we had a mass free culture. We had a culture where employees could say no to me, to customers, to each other. Um, people didn't hide their weaknesses. They threw them out on the table, including me. And we just grew like crazy as people. Um, we didn't have to have seven meetings to get to something. We did it in one by not avoiding difficult conversations. And, you know, our unique perspectives, when I had 50 employees, a lot of times, you know, you, you depend on the executive team to see the blind spots and, and unlock innovations. But we had 50 people at the table equally participating with their unique perspective. And, as, and we went up against companies with 150 million venture capital, um, and all I had was my credit card 
And yet we were able to grow 20,000% in six years and become an E500 company and get acquired by a publicly traded company. And I really think that we did business in a different way. Um, when, cus when customers asked if, if we knew how to do something, we were like, no, we don't know how to do that. And they're like, what? You don't know how to do that? And we're like, yeah, let, but let us tell you like what we do know and what we have done and what we would do to solve this problem. They'd be like, wow, can't believe you said that. You know, and then you just you, you do business differently like this. And all of a sudden you're able to connect with your employees and your customers in a human way that transcends work. And that really, really helps. But also when you empower and activate everybody's authentic self, you unlock so much innovation and you get rid of so much BS and mass. It's ridiculous. And that's why with us with 50 employees, we were able to slaughter companies with 500. You also have an example where I think one of the largest clients you had at the time was about to walk away or, or you thought they were going to walk away because I think something in the system just or software just went bust. It didn't work out. And you're like, oh, like this, this is the worst situation ever because we're going to lose our biggest customer. I don't even know how to tell them. And then what you ended up doing was you actually told them the truth and they not only stayed with you, but they wanted to move forward like a longer contract. Is, is uh, I'd love to, for you to expand on that. Yeah, it's uh, it's what I would call the um, best and worst 24 hours of my life. And it's the reason that at the age of 41, most of my beard is white. Um, <laughs> so we we had we had signed up one of the top um, national hospital systems in the US and we had a pilot with them. And for a while, we negotiated with corporate about them going nationwide with our software. And it was going to be the difference between us being in thousands of revenue or millions in revenue and us running out of runway or being able to keep going. And after all this work one night, like they said, they, the, my contact called me and I said, Mike, we are going to go nationwide with your software. And not only that, we're going to do $3 million worth of advertising in our markets about your software. And we had no money for marketing. So this was like huge for us. So we were... Like that's the closest I've gotten to getting high in my recovery. Like we were so excited about the, the way we were like, this is going to be huge. This is going to be amazing. And so we went, uh, we, we got in the car and we went to on a business trip to go meet with another hospital system. And we were so excited. And then the next morning I wake up and my COO is like, wait, what happened? And he's talking to someone on our team. And it turned out that um, there had been a there, there had been a, a failure in our software that, that did something to a patient at a hospital. And I remember asking, I'm like, wait, please tell me it's not the hospital that's part of this huge expansion. Cause we had seven hospitals. It was a one out of seven chance that it was the hospital associated with this huge expansion. And Damn. it was that freaking hospital. And worse, the hospital didn't know, the patient didn't know, it didn't <laughs> hurt anybody. And I had members of my team saying, let's not tell them Let's just fix the glitch and, and keep going. And for me, I didn't, our contract said that we had to tell them mm. and I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And, 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 and I had a sponsee uh, in recovery call me up and he had this huge problem. And I found myself saying, practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome and do uncomfortable work. And when I got off the phone, I realized I didn't know what it was like to lead a startup, but as a recovering addict for eight years, I knew what it was like to lead myself. And I knew that I could not build a company on a lie and that I needed to practice these three principles. And so I called them up. Um, I was like, I set the stage. I told them about the failure. There was this long pause. And then my contact just started laughing wildly. Like she had like watched a comedy or something like that. And I thought that meant that there were really bad things for us. And I was like, so Trish, why, why are you laughing? And she said, I know that I have partners that have one patient 
be negatively impacted by a failure in their software, but they never tell me. When I get a call like this, it's because 20,000 patients have been impacted. Mm -hmm. So this is crazy that you even called me about this. And I'm like, okay, so what does that mean for the conversation we had yesterday about the nationwide expansion? She said, man, we're going to keep going forward. Like, I like what you guys did to fix the glitch. Um, I, I have so much respect for you for telling me. And that means that you're the partner for us. Like we're excited. We know we can trust you. And one of the cool things that that did for me is every moment after that, where we had a mess up or we didn't agree with them, I was able to take off the mask because I knew that we had that type of dynamic and they respected us for it. We became trusted advisors to them. And it became, to me, that story is not about the fact that we won that customer. That story is about the fact that I got to tell that story to every employee that I hired after that and said, this is how we do business. This is how we, we live and lead mask free here. If you can't do that, then you don't get to work here. And, and I think it was just, it was huge for us. And I teach, I teach entrepreneurs, like, it's so crazy. They'll be like, man, you just gave me this amazing advice. I'm like, I just told you to take your mask off. Like everybody actually knows what they need to do. They just need to stop believing that they need to put the mask on. It's funny how it became ingrained in the culture too, right? Just from that one scenario, it becomes so important that moving forward, this is what we're going to be about. Yeah. Well, this is what I tell founders. Cause I mean, I, I've coached a lot of entrepreneurs when, when entrepreneurs are trying to figure out what their company values are, they're, they're, they're going through the absolutely wrong process. Their company values have already been set. It's whatever their personal values are. Because if you don't found, if you don't build your company around your personal values as a founder, you will be operating out of integrity with your company's principles. You will have to do work to be able to do that. But if you do it around your personal value system, which for me was practice rigorous authenticity, surrender the outcome, do uncomfortable work, then you embody the values effortlessly and you're able to do things that, that are those, those test moments where mm. you just, your, your natural training kicks in and you execute the way that you would, like I did in that moment. And so for me, every employee after that, there's so many moments, like when we hired our investment banker to go through our process that led to our exit, they said, no matter what you do, do not let the employees know until you have a signed offer letter. And yeah, that would have it's... been in August of 2015. In December of 2014, nine months before that moment, I brought the company together and I told them that we were going through a process. And my investment banker was pissed. Pissed. Dude, I was on the M&A side and we would go crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, seriously, he was, he was, he was livid. But yeah. it, it was my value system. But man, they still talk about that. Like we still have get togethers, even though it's been five years since the company was sold and most of us have moved on, we still come together as a group and we reminisce about those moments because the real secret is if you can turn your place of work into a practice ground for how to live mask free, your team can go out into the real world in their personal time and have the skill to take their mask off. And that's the real gift. And that's a benefit that you can't, that's a benefit that a catered lunch just doesn't match. I got one for you uh, based on what we're talking about right now, but how do you then balance also the, the, you know, the want of, of be, being almost like a family in a weird way, you know, like a startup is, especially yeah. when it's less than a hundred people, you have that small culture and you want to be friends, but balancing that with professionalism. And like, when you want to get shit done, you also want to be that leader that not enforces it, but really like, guys, let's, let's put on our, our game face and get shit done here. Cause that's always so, tough. It is tough. So I actually, um, when I would hire someone, I would look them in the eye and be like, we are not your family. This is not a family. 
because I'm being disingenuous if I actually say this is a family because you are not my blood relative and you are sacrificing time from your actual family to be here. So I'm going to be real. This is not family. At the same time, I'm going to love you and I'm going to respect the time that you invest here because you do have a family that isn't us, which ironically creates a family-like atmosphere because everybody can be more mask-free in the company than they could with their own families. And then here's the ultimate test, and you're going to love this. My, my spiritual mother of choice, my, basically my mom, okay, came to work for me as my director of finance. And at some point, she wasn't meeting expectations. And I had to put her on a PIP, a performance improvement plan. I had to put my own mother on a PIP. And so I had to walk into her office and be like, if you don't improve in these areas, I'm going to fire you. And the reason that she succeeded and the reason that our personal relationship was unfazed was because the reason that people can't do business with people that they care about is because they're scared of having the difficult conversations. They're, they're too invested in the person. And so if you are just able to communicate your authentic truth, whether you're hanging out watching a, 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 a game or you're in the boardroom, you can have that full range of relationship. But I also, for what it's worth, I told my team, I said, I'm going to be completely enmeshed with you at work. I'm going to care about your personal lives in a way that no one ever has. But on my free time, I'm not going to go out to the bar. I'm not going to go out to dinner. I'm not going to go do all that other stuff. I'm going to go to my meetings and I'm going to go home and spend time with my family. And, and that was the way that I like, you know, created my, my, my boundaries, but I was just all, I'm not saying that's what other people should do. I was just honoring what mattered to me. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think that it's when you, when you build a personal relationship, you start to get scared of hurting the other person exactly. or how it's going to affect them. But everybody actually desperately is just wanting the truth so they can have the information to make the best decisions for themselves and for the people around them. And so ironically, the people we love the most are the people we rob of the information they so desperately want and need. And so when you can square those and actually stomach the difficult conflict that happens in the boardroom, you know, we're laughing one minute and the next minute I'm saying you're not meeting expectations. That's when you can actually have the most sincere relationship possible. And that's why this stuff is not about personal or professional. It's just about the person. Can the person live and lead mask free? And if they can, they can have that full range of, of, of experiences with the people that they work with. And does that come with experience? Because I feel like when you do have, you know, difficult conversations, sometimes, you know, you're super nervous, you're stuttering, you're like on the inside, you just don't want to do it. And it depends obviously on each person and personality types are maybe better inclined to do so. But for, for just the average Joe listening, like how, how does that advice resonate in terms of getting better at having those difficult conversations? In my experience, it's about practice. And then here's the thing, like I go back to the four masks, right? So like one of them is avoiding difficult conversations. Another one is hiding a weakness. Anytime I've found that I'm ineffective in a difficult conversation, I go tell someone that I'm ineffective in a difficult conversation and I ask for help. And I say, you know, what do I need to do? Do I need to talk to a mentor? Do I need to read a book? Do I just need to role play with you? Like, what do I need to do? Um, but having a difficult conversation also, I think sometimes we think of them as like these movie moments that are perfect and scripted. Real life is messy. It's authentic. It's not perfect. And difficult conversations are messy. 
I think judging our performance um, in terms of, did I do this? Was I nervous? Like, screw that. You're going to be nervous. You're going to be scared. All that stuff. Get comfortable with this, the discomfort. Get comfortable with the uncomfortable work. The question is, were you respectful to the other person? Were you respectful to yourself? And were you respectful to the truth? And to me, that comes with practice. And then when I find I'm limited in doing that, I go seek mentorship. Like I remember like, you know, being all about like telling the truth and then having customers that I didn't want to tell the truth to because I didn't want to upset them. <clears throat> I just had to go find other people that were effective at having hard conversations with customers. Right, right. I love it, man. Well, listen, I'm going to ask you one more because um, I think you, you were, usually I'd, I'd ask like advice for entrepreneurs, but you already kind of hit that uh, automatically. What I do want to ask too is from the books behind, what's that one read that really, change your perspective on life. It, it, it truly was gifts of imperfection and daring greatly. I see them as one book. I know they're technically two books by Brene Brown, but when I was um, in 2011 or 2012, uh, I was a CEO of one of the fastest growing startups in the U S and uh, I was struggling with my responsibility as CEO, not having had a college degree or whatever and feeling insecure. And one of the things that I thought was all my experience in recovery from addiction should be my leadership skill set. Mm. It should be my leadership framework. But I had some mentors that painted me as naive for thinking that. Oh, don't be authentic. Like, you know, hide the truth, right? Like that kind of stuff. They never said that exactly, but you know what I mean? And Major. so when I read Brene Brown's words in the, in the gifts of imperfection and the power of vulnerability, and then when she followed that up with daring greatly, I realized that leading is not doing what other people say. It's, it's leading yourself and then everything else from a leadership perspective comes from that. And I was like, why can't I be the guy? All the people, it's really interesting. People will say, oh man, you wanna be like Steve Jobs. You wanna be like Larry Ellison. You wanna be like Mark Zuckerberg. You wanna be like these people. And then they say, but don't act the way that I think you, you know, make sure you act the way I think you should act. Yet all these people broke all the effing rules. So, so it's this, it, you know, I read these, these, um, these stories to my daughter about how you can be anything and you can be anyone. And then you finally get in the room where you can be a leader or for me, I'm trying to be a CEO and someone's like, you got to act like every other CEO out there. And I was like, you know what? Screw that. I'm going to use my recovery as my superpower as a CEO. And I'm going to see what happens because that's what I believe in. And if I had not come across Brene Brown's work, that would not have happened. And I wouldn't have written the book that I just wrote. I wouldn't have given the TED talk that I gave. I wouldn't be on this podcast with you, which is a marvelous opportunity, all because she gave me permission to lead in a way that I had never seen done. And, and it was, and it was I, I'm forever indebted to her for that. Love it, man. Well, dude, this was a, an amazing, amazing conversation. So, so one, thank you for, for opening up and giving that story and, and, and obviously the, the lessons that come with it. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, dude. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. And I'll see you next time.